0: Tass stared at Tannis in astonishment, then nodded hesitantly. It had been a long time since he'd been forced to translate Elvin. Tannis could only hope he understood. Karaman spoke no Elvin at all, and Tannis didn't dare risk speaking common, even if his voice was swallowed by the noise of the crowd. As it was, one of the guards wrenched his arm painfully, ordering him to be silent. The noise died down. The crowd was bullied and shoved back into place. Seeing things under control, the guards turned to lead their prisoners away. Suddenly, Tannis stumbled and fell, tripping his guard who sprawled headlong into the dust. Get up, slime! Cursing, the other guard cuffed Tannis with the handle of a whip, striking him across the face. The half-elf lunged for the guard, grabbing the whip-handle and the hand that held it. Tannis yanked with all his strength, and his sudden move sent the guard, head over heels. For a split second, he was free. Hurling himself forward, aware of the guards behind him, aware also of Karaman's astonished face, Tannis threw himself toward the regal figure riding the blue dragon. Kitiara! He yelled, just as the guards caught hold of him. Kitiara! he screamed, a hoarse, ragged shout that seemed torn from his chest. Fighting the guards he managed to free one hand with it, he gripped his helmet and tore it off his head, hurling it to the ground. The High Lord in the night-blue, dragon-scale armor turned upon hearing her name. Tannis could see her brown eyes widen in astonishment beneath the hideous dragon-mask she wore he could see the fiery eyes of the male blue dragon turn to gaze at him as well. Kitiara! he shouted. Shaking off his captors with a strength born of desperation, he dove forward again. But Draconians in the crowd flung themselves on him, knocking him to the ground, where they held him pinned by his arms. Still Tannis struggled, twisting to look into the eyes of the High Lord. Halt! Sky! Kityara said, placing a gloved hand commandingly on the dragon's neck. Skye stopped obediently, his clawed feet slipping slightly on the cobblestones of the street, but the dragon's eyes, as they glared at Tanis, were filled with jealousy and hatred. Tanis held his breath. His heart beat painfully, his head ached, and blood dribbled into one eye, but he didn't notice— He waited for the shout that would tell him Tasselhoff hadn't understood that his friends had tried to come to his aid. He waited for Kitiara to look behind him and see Karaman, her half-brother, and recognize him. He didn't dare turn around to see what had happened to his friends. He could only hope Karaman had sense enough and faith enough in him to keep out of sight. And now here came the captain. His cruel, one-eyed face distorted in rage. Raising a booted foot, the captain aimed a kick for Tannis's head, preparing to render this meddlesome troublemaker unconscious. Stop! said a voice. The captain halted so suddenly that he staggered off balance. Let him go! The same voice. Reluctantly, the guards released Tannis and fell back away from him at an imperious gesture from the Dark Lady. "'What is so important, Commander, that you disrupt my entrance?' she asked in cool tones, her voice sounding deep and distorted behind the dragon helm. Stumbling to his feet, weak with relief, his head swimming from his struggles with the guards, Tannis made his way forward to stand beside her. As he drew nearer, he saw a flicker of amusement in Kitiara's brown eyes. She was enjoying this. A new game with an old toy. Clearing his throat, Tannis spoke boldly. These idiots arrested me for desertion, he stated. All because that imbecile, Barakas, forgot to give me the proper papers. I'll see he pays the penalty for having caused you trouble, good Tanthalassa, replied Kitiara. Tannis could hear the laughter in her voice. How dare you! she added, whirling to glower at the captain, who cringed as the helmed visage turned toward him. I... I was just following orders, my lord, he stuttered, shaking like a goblin. Be off with you, or you'll feed my dragon. Kichara commanded peremptorily, waving her hand. Then, in the same graceful gesture, she held out her gloved hand to Tanis. May I offer you a ride, Commander? To make amends, of course. Thank you, Lord, Tanis said. Casting a dark glance at the captain, Tannis accepted Kitiara's hand and swung himself up beside her on the back of the blue dragon. His eyes quickly scanned the crowd as Kitiara ordered Sky forward once more. For a moment, his agonized search could detect nothing. Then he sighed in relief as he saw Karaman and the others being led away by the guards. The big man glanced up at him as they passed, a hurt and puzzled expression on his face but he kept moving. Either Tass had passed along the message or the big man had sense enough to keep up the act. Or perhaps Karaman trusted him anyway. Tanis didn't know. His friends were safe now, at least safer than they were with him. This might be the last time I ever see them, he thought suddenly, with pain. Then he shook his head. He could not let himself dwell on that. Turning away, he discovered Kityara's brown eyes regarding him with an odd mixture of cunning and undisguised admiration. Tasseloff stood on his tiptoes, trying to see what became of Tanis. He heard shouts and yells, then a moment of silence. Then he saw the half-elf climb onto the dragon and sit beside Kitiara. The procession started up again. The Kender thought he saw Tanis look his way, but, if so, it was without recognition. The guards shoved their remaining prisoners through the jostling crowd, and Tass lost sight of his friend. One of the guards prodded Karaman in his ribs with a short sword. So, your buddy gets a lift from the High Lord and you rot in prison, the Draconian said, chuckling. He won't forget me. Karaman muttered. The Draconian grinned and nudged his partner, who was dragging Tasselhoff along, one clawed hand on the Kender's collar. Sure, he'll come back for you, if he can manage to find his way out of her bed. Karaman flushed, scowling. Tasselhoff shot the big warrior an alarmed glance. The Kender hadn't had a chance to give Karaman Tannis his last message, and he was terrified the big man would ruin everything. Although Tass wasn't really certain, what there was left to ruin? Still. But Karaman only tossed his head in injured dignity. I'll be out before nightfall, he rumbled in his deep baritone. We've been through too much together. He wouldn't let me down. Catching a wistful note in Karaman's voice, Tass wriggled in anxiety, longing to get close enough to Karaman to explain, but at that moment Tika cried out in anger. Twisting his head, Tass saw the guard rip her blouse. There were already bloody gashes made by its clawing hands on her neck. Karaman shouted, but too late. Tika struck the guard with a backhand on the side of its reptilian face in the best barroom tradition. Furious, the Draconian hurled Tika to the street and raised its whip. Tass heard Karaman suck in his breath, and the Kender cringed, preparing himself for the end. Hey! Don't damage her! Karaman roared. Unless you want to be held accountable... Lord Katiara told us to get six silver pieces for her, and we won't do it if she's marked up. The Draconian hesitated. Karaman was a prisoner, that was true, but the guards had all seen the welcome reception his friend had received from the Dark Lady. Did they dare take a chance on offending another man who might stand high in her favor? Apparently they decided not. Roughly dragging Tika to her feet, they shoved her forward. Tasselhoff breathed a sigh of relief, then stole a worried peek back at Barum, thinking that the man had been very quiet. He was right. The Everman had been in a different world. His eyes, wide open, were fixed in a strange stare. His mouth gaped. He almost appeared half-witted, at least he didn't look like he was about to cause trouble. It seemed that Karaman was going to continue playing his role, and that Tika would be all right for the time being. No one needed him. Sighing in relief, Tass began to look with interest around the temple compound, at least as well as he could with the draconian hanging on to his collar. He was sorry he did. Naraka looked exactly like what it was, a small, ancient, impoverished village built to serve those who inhabited the temple, now overrun by the tent city that had sprouted up around it like fungus. At the far end of the compound, the temple itself loomed over the city like a carrion bird of prey, its twisted, deformed, obscene structure seeming to dominate even the mountains on the horizon behind. Once anyone set foot in Naraka, his eyes went first to the temple. After that, no matter where else he looked or what other business occupied him, the temple was always there, even at night. Even in his dreams. Tas took one look, then hurriedly glanced away, feeling a cold sickness creep over him. But the sights before him were almost worse The tent city was filled with troops, draconians and human mercenaries, goblins and hobgoblins spilled out of the hastily constructed bars and brothels onto the filthy streets. Slaves of every race had been brought in to serve their captors and provide for their unholy pleasures. Gully dwarves swarmed underfoot like rats, living off the refuse. The stench was overpowering. The sights were like something from the abyss. Although it was midday, the square was dark and chill as night. Glancing up, Tass saw the huge flying citadels floating above the temple in terrible majesty, their dragons circling them in unceasing watchfulness. When they had first started down the crowded streets, Tass had hoped he might have a chance to break free he was an expert in melting in with a crowd. He saw Karaman's eyes flick about, too. The big man was thinking the same thing. But after walking only a few blocks, after seeking the Citadels keeping their dreadful watch above, Tass realized it was hopeless. Apparently, Karaman reached the same conclusion, for the Kender saw the warrior's shoulders slump. Appalled and horrified, Tass suddenly thought of Lorana being held prisoner here. The Kender's buoyant spirit seemed finally crushed by the weight of the darkness and evil all around him, darkness and evil he had never dreamed existed. Their guards hurried them along, pushing and shoving their way through the drunken, brawling soldiers, down the clogged and narrow streets. Try as he might, Task couldn't figure out any way of relaying Tanis' message to Karaman. Then they were forced to come to a halt as a contingent of Her Dark Majesty's troops, lined up shoulder to shoulder, came marching through the streets. Those who did not get out of their way were hurled bodily to the sidewalk by the draconian officers or were simply knocked down and trampled. The companion's guards hastily shoved them up against a crumbling wall and ordered them to stand still until the soldiers had passed. Tasselhoff found himself flattened between Karaman on one side and a Draconian on the other. The guard had loosened its clawed grip on Tass's shirt, evidently figuring that not even a kender would be foolish enough to try to escape in this mob. Though Tass could feel the reptile's black eyes on him, he was able to squirm near enough to Karaman to talk. He hoped he wasn't overheard, and didn't expect to be, with all the head-bashing and boot-thumping going on around him. Karaman! Tass whispered. I've got a message. Can you hear me? Karaman did not turn, but kept staring straight ahead, his face set rock-hard. But Tass saw one eyelid flutter. Tannis said to trust him, Tass whispered swiftly, no matter what, and and to keep up the act. I
1: think that's what he said.
0: He saw Karaman frown. He spoke in elven, Tass said huffily, and it was hard to hear. Karaman's expression did not change, if anything. It grew darker. Tass swallowed. Edging closer, he pressed up against the wall right behind the big warrior's broad back. That... That dragon
1: high lord... The kender said hesitantly. That...
0: was Kitiara, wasn't it? Karaman did not answer, but Tass saw the muscles in the man's jaw tighten. He saw a nerve begin to twitch in Karaman's neck. Tass sighed. Forgetting where he was, he raised his voice. You do trust him, don't you, Caraman?" Because... Without warning, Tass's draconian guard turned and bashed the kender across the mouth, slamming him into the wall. Dazed with pain, Tasselhoff sank down to the ground. A dark shadow bent over him, his vision fuzzy. Tass couldn't see who it was. And he braced himself for another blow. Then he felt strong. Gentle hands lift him by his fleecy vest. I told you not to damage them, growled Karaman. Bah! The kinder! the draconian spat. The troops had nearly all passed by now. Karaman set Tass on his feet. The kinder tried to stand up, but for some reason the sidewalk kept slipping out from underneath him. I... I'm sorry, he heard himself mumble legs acting funny. Finally he felt himself hoisted in the air and, with a protesting squeak, he was flung over Karaman's broad shoulder like a meal sack. He's got information, Karaman said in his deep voice. I hope you haven't addled his brain so that he's lost it. The Dark Lady won't be pleased. What brain? snarled the Draconian. But Tass, from his upside-down position, on Karaman's back, thought the creature appeared a bit shaken. They began to walk again. Tass's head hurt horribly, his cheek stung. Putting his hand to it, he felt sticky blood where the Draconian's claws had dug into his skin. There was a sound in his ears like a hundred bees had taken up residence in his brain. The world seemed to be slowly circling around him, making his stomach queasy and being jounced around on Karaman's armor-plated back wasn't helping. How much farther is it? He could feel Karaman's voice vibrate in the big man's chest. The little bastard's heavy. In answer, the draconian pointed a long, bony claw. With a great effort, Trying to take his mind off his pain and dizziness, Tass twisted his head to see. He could manage only a glance, but it was enough. The building had been growing larger and larger as they approached, until it filled not only the vision, but the mind as well. Tass slumped back. His sight was growing dim, and he wondered drowsily why it was getting so foggy. The last thing he remembered was hearing the words To the dungeons, beneath the temple of Her Majesty Tarkasis,
1: Queen of Darkness. Chapter 6 Tanis Bargains, Garkan Investigates
0: Wine? No. Kityara shrugged. Taking the pitcher from the bowl of snow in which it rested to keep cool, she slowly poured some for herself, idly watching the blood-red liquid run out of the crystal carafe and into her glass. Then she carefully set the crystal carafe back into the snow and sat down opposite Tanis, regarding him coolly. She had taken off the dragon helm, but she wore her armor still, the night-blue armor, gilded with gold, that fit over her lithe body like scaled skin. The light from the many candles in the room gleamed in the polished surfaces and glinted off the sharp metal edges until Kitiara seemed ablaze in flame. Her dark hair, damp with perspiration, curled around her face, Her brown eyes were bright as fire, shadowed by long, dark lashes. Why are you here, Tannis? She asked softly, running her finger along the rim of her glass as she gazed steadily at him. You know why? He answered briefly. Lorana, of course, Kitiara said. Tannis shrugged, careful to keep his face a mask yet fearing that this woman who sometimes knew him better than he knew himself could read every thought. You came alone? Kitiara asked, sipping at the wine. Yes, Tannis replied, returning her gaze without faltering. Kitiara raised an eyebrow in obvious disbelief. Flint's dead, he added, his voice breaking. Even in his fear, he still could not think of his friend without pain. And Tasselhoff wandered off somewhere. I couldn't find him. I... I didn't really want to bring him anyway. I can understand, Kit said wryly. So Flint is dead. Like Sturm. Tannis could not help but add through clenched teeth. Kit glanced at him sharply. The fortunes of war, my dear, she said. We were both soldiers, he and I. He understands. His spirit bears me no malice. Tannis choked angrily, swallowing his words. What she had said was true. Sturm would understand. Kityara was silent as she watched Tannis's face a few moments. Then she set the glass down with a clink. What about my brothers? She asked, "Where? Why don't you just take me to the dungeons and interrogate me? Tannis snarled. Rising out of his chair, he began to pace the luxurious room. Kityara smiled, an introspective, thoughtful smile. Yes, she said. I could interrogate you there, and you would talk. Dear Tannis, You would tell me all I wanted to hear. And then you would beg to tell me more. Not only do we have those who are skilled in the art of torture, but they are passionately dedicated to their profession. Rising languorously, Kitiaro walked over to stand in front of Tannis, her wine glass in one hand. She placed her other hand on his chest and slowly ran her palm up over his shoulder. But this is not an interrogation. Say, rather, it is a sister, concerned about her family. Where are my brothers? I don't know, Tanis said. Catching her wrist firmly in his hand, he held her hand away from him. They were both lost in the blood sea.
1: With the green gemstone, man? With the
0: green gemstone man. And how did you survive? Sea elves rescued me. Then they might have rescued the others? Perhaps. Perhaps not. I am elven, after all. The others were human. Kitiara stared at Tannis. Long moments. He still held her wrist in his hand, unconsciously, under her penetrating gaze, his fingers closed around it.
1: You're hurting me, Kit whispered softly.
0: Why did you come, Tannis? To rescue Lorana? Alone? Even you were never that foolish. No, Tannis said, tightening his grasp on Kitiara's arm. I came to make a trade. Take me. Let her go. Kityara's eyes opened wide, then suddenly she threw back her head and laughed. With a quick, easy move she broke free of Tannis's grip and, turning, walked over to the table to refill her wineglass. She grinned at him over her shoulder. Why, Tannis! she said, laughing again. What are you to me that I should make this trade? Tannis felt his face flush. Still grinning, Kitiara continued. I have captured their golden general, Tannis. I have taken their good luck charm, their beautiful elven warrior. She wasn't a bad general either, for that matter. She brought them the dragon lances and taught them to fight. Her brother brought back the good dragons, but everyone credits her. She kept the knights together when they should have split apart long before this. And you want me to exchange her for Kitiara gestured contemptuously. A half elf who's been wandering the countryside in the company of a kender, barbarians, and dwarves? Kitiara began to laugh again, laughing so hard, she was forced to sit down and wipe tears from her eyes. Really, Tannis? You have a high opinion of yourself. What did you think I'd take you back for, love? There was a subtle change in Kit's voice. Her laugh seemed forced. Frowning suddenly, she twisted the wineglass in her hand. Tanis did not respond. He could only stand before her, his skin burning at her ridicule. Kitiara stared at him, then lowered her gaze. Suppose I said yes. She asked in a cold voice, her eyes on the glass in her hand. What could you give me in return for what I would lose? Tanis drew a deep breath. The commander of your forces is dead, he said, keeping his voice even. I know. Tass told me he killed him. I'll take his place. You'd serve under... In the dragon armies. Kit's eyes widened in genuine astonishment. Yes. Tannis gritted his teeth. His voice was bitter. We've lost anyway. I've seen your floating citadels. We can't win, even if the good dragons stayed and they won't. The people will send them back. The people never trusted them anyway, not really. I care for only one thing. Let Lorana go free, unharmed. I truly believe you would do this, Kityara said softly, marvelling. For long moments she stared at him. I'll have to consider. Then, as if arguing with herself, she shook her head. Putting the glass to her lips, she swallowed the wine, set the glass down, and rose to her feet. I'll consider, she repeated. But now I must leave you, Tannis. There is a meeting of the Dragon High Lords tonight. They have come from all over Ansalon to attend. You are right, of course. You have lost the war. Tonight we make plans to clench the fist of iron. You will attend me. I will present you to her dark majesty. And Lorana? Tanis persisted. I said I would consider it. A dark line marred the smooth skin between Kitiara's feathery eyebrows. Her voice was sharp. Ceremonial armor will be brought to you. Be dressed and ready to accompany me within the hour. She started to go, then turned to face Tannis once more. My decision may depend on how you conduct yourself this evening, she said softly. Remember, half-elven, from this moment you serve me. The brown eyes glittered clear and cold as they held Tannis in their thrall. Slowly he felt the will of this woman press upon him, until it was like a strong hand forcing him down onto the polished marble floor. The might of the dragon armies was behind her. The shadow of the Dark Queen hovered around her, imbuing her with a power Tannis had noticed before. Suddenly Tannis felt the great distance between them. She was supremely, superbly human. For only the humans were endowed with the lust for power so strong that the raw passion of their nature could be easily corrupted. The humans' brief lives were as flames that could burn with a pure light like gold moon's candle, like Sturm's shattered sun. Or the flame could destroy, a searing fire that consumed all in its path. He had warmed his cold, sluggish, elven blood by that fire. He had nurtured the flame in his heart. Now he saw himself as he would become, as he had seen the bodies of those who had died in the flames of Tarsus, a mass of charred flesh, the heart black and still. It was his due, the price he must pay. He would lay his soul upon this woman's altar as another might lay a handful of silver upon a pillow. He owed Lorana that much. She had suffered enough because of him, his death would not free her, but his life might. Slowly, Tanis placed his hand
1: over his heart and bowed. My lord, he said. Ketiara walked into her private
0: chamber, her mind in a turmoil. She felt her blood pulse through her veins. Excitement, desire, the glorious elation of victory made her more drunk than the wine. Yet beneath was a nagging doubt, all the more irritating because it turned the elation flat and stale. Angrily she tried to banish it from her mind, but it was brought sharply into focus as she opened the door to her room. The servants had not expected her so soon, the torches had not been lit, the fire was laid, but not burning. Irritably she reached for the bell-rope that would send them scurrying in to be berated for their laxness, when suddenly a cold and fleshless hand closed over her wrist. The touch of that hand sent a burning sensation of cold through her bones and blood until it nearly froze her heart. Kityara gasped with the pain and started to pull free, but the hand held her fast. You have not forgotten our bargain? No, of course not, Kitiara said, trying to keep the quiver of fear from her voice. She commanded sternly, Let me go. The hand slowly released its grip. Kitiara hurriedly snatched her arm away, rubbing the flesh that, even in that short span of time, had turned bluish-white. The elf-woman will be yours when the queen has finished with her, of course. Of course. I would not want her otherwise. A living woman is of no use to me, not like a living man is of use to you. The dark figure's voice lingered unpleasantly over the words. Kityara cast a scornful glance at the pallid face, the flickering eyes that floated, disembodied, above the black armor of the night. Don't be a fool, Soth, she said, pulling the bell-rope hastily. She felt a need for light. I am able to separate the pleasures of the flesh from the pleasures of business, something you were unable to do from what I know of your life. Then what are your plans for the half-elf? Lord Soth asked, his voice seeming as usual to come from far below ground. He will be mine, utterly and completely, Kityara said, gently rubbing her injured wrist. Servants hurried in with hesitant sideway glances at the Dark Lady, fearing her notorious explosions of wrath, but Kitiara, preoccupied with her thoughts, ignored them. Lord Soth faded back into the shadows as always when the candles were lit. The only way to possess the half-elf is to make him watch as I destroy Lorana, Kitiara continued. That is hardly the way to win his love. Lord Soth sneered. I don't want his love. Pulling off her gloves and unbuckling her armor, Kitiara laughed shortly. I want him. As long as she lives, his thoughts will be of her and of the noble sacrifice he has made. No, the only way he will be mine, totally, is to be ground beneath the heel of my boot until he is nothing more than a shapeless mass. Then he will be of use to me. Not for long. Lord Soth remarked caustically. Death will free him. Kityara shrugged. The servants had completed their tasks and vanished quickly. The dark lady stood in the light, silent and thoughtful. Her armor, half on and half off, her dragon helm dangling from her hand. He has lied to me, she said softly after a moment. Then, flinging the helm down on the table where it struck and shattered a dusty porcelain vase, Kit began to pace back and forth. He has lied. My brothers did not die in the Blood Sea. At least one of them lives, I know. And so does he, the Ever-Man. Peremptorily, Kityara flung open the door. Gakan! she shouted. A Draconian hurried into the room. What news? Have they found that captain yet? No, Lord! The Draconian replied. He was the same one who had followed Tanis from the inn in Flotsam, the same who had helped trap Lorana. He is off duty, Lord, the creature added, as if that explained everything. Kityara understood. Search every beer tent and brothel until he is found, then bring him here. Lock him in irons if you have to. I'll question him when I return from the High Lord's Assembly. No, wait. Kityara paused, then added. You question him. Find out if the half-elf was truly alone, as he said, or if there were others with him, if so. The Draconian bowed. You will be informed at once, my lord. Kitiara dismissed him with a gesture, and the Draconian, bowing again, left, shutting the door behind him. After standing thoughtfully for a moment, Kitiara irritably ran her hand through her curly hair then began yanking at the straps of her armor once again. You will attend me tonight, she said to Lord Soth, without looking at the apparition of the death knight which, she assumed, was still in its same place behind her. Be watchful. Lord Ariakas will not be pleased with what I intend to do. Tossing the last piece of armor to the floor, Kityara pulled off the leather tunic and the blue silken hose. Then, stretching in luxurious freedom, she glanced over her shoulder to see Lord Soth's reaction to her words. He was not there. Startled, she glanced quickly around the room. The spectral knight stood beside the dragon helm that lay on the table amidst pieces of the broken vase. With a wave of his fleshless hand, Lord Soth caused the shattered remains of the vase to rise into the air and hover before him. Holding them by the force of his magic, the Death Knight turned to regard Kitiara with his flaming orange eyes as she stood naked before him. The firelight turned her tanned skin golden, made her dark hair shine with warmth. You are a woman still, Kitiara. Lord Soth said slowly, You love. The knight did not move or speak, but the pieces of the vase fell to the floor. His pallid boot trod upon them as he passed, leaving no trace of his passing. And you hurt. He said softly to Kitiara as he drew near her, Do not deceive yourself, dark lady. Crush him as you will. The half-elf will always be your master. Even in death. Lord Soth melded with the shadows of the room. Kityara stood for long moments, staring into the blazing fire, seeking, perhaps, to read her fortune in the flames. Garkan walked rapidly down the corridor of the queen's palace, his clawed feet clicking on the marble floors. The Draconian's thoughts kept pace with his stride. It had suddenly occurred to him where the captain might be found. Seeing two Draconians attached to Kityara's command lounging at the end of the corridor, Garkan motioned them to fall in behind him. They obeyed immediately. Though Garkan held no rank in the dragon army, not any more, He was known officially as the Dark Lady's military aide. Unofficially, he was known as her personal assassin. Gakhan had been in Kitiara's service a long time. When word of the discovery of the Blue Crystal Staff had reached the Queen of Darkness and her minions, few of the Dragon High Lords attached much importance to its disappearance, deeply involved in the war that was slowly stamping the life out of the northern lands of Anselin. Something as trivial as a staff with healing powers did not merit their attention. It would take a great deal of healing. To heal the world, Ariacus had stated, laughing at a council of war. But two high lords did take the disappearance of the staff seriously. One who ruled that part of Ansalon where the staff had been discovered, and one who had been born and raised in the area. One was a dark cleric, the other a skilled swordswoman. Both knew how dangerous proof of the return of the ancient gods could be to their cause. They reacted differently, perhaps because of location. Lord Verminard sent out swarms of draconians, goblins, and hobgoblins with full descriptions of the blue crystal staff and its powers. Kitiara sent Gakhan. It was Garkan who traced Riverwind and the blue crystal staff to the village of Kweishu, and it was Garkan who ordered the raid on the village, systematically murdering most of the inhabitants in a search for the staff. But he left Quexiu suddenly, having heard reports of the staff in Solace. The Draconian traveled to that town only to find that he had missed it by a matter of weeks. But there. He discovered that the barbarians who carried the staff had been joined by a group of adventurers, purportedly from Solace, according to the locals he interviewed. Gakan was faced with a decision at this point. He could try and pick up their trail, which had undoubtedly grown cold during the intervening weeks, or he could return to Kitiara with descriptions of these adventurers to see if she knew them. If so, she might be able to provide him with information that would allow him to plot their movements in advance. He decided to return to Kitiara, who was fighting in the north. Lord Verminard's thousands were much more likely to find the staff than Ghakan. He brought complete descriptions of the adventurers to Kitiara, who was startled to learn that they were her two half-brothers, her old comrades in arms, and her former lover. Immediately, Kitiara saw the workings of a great power here, for she knew that this group of mismatched wanderers could be forged into a dynamic force for either good or evil. She immediately took her misgivings to the Queen of Darkness, who was already disturbed by the portent of the missing constellation of the valiant warrior. At once the Queen knew she had been correct. Paladine had returned to fight her, but by the time she realized the danger, the damage had been done. Kityara set Gakan back on the trail, step by step, the clever Draconian traced the companions from Pax Tharkis to the Dwarven kingdom. It was he who followed them in Tarsus, and there he and the Dark Lady would have captured them had it not been for Alhanna Starbreeze and her griffins. Patiently, Gakan kept on their trail. He knew of the group's separation, hearing reports of them from Sylvanaste, where they drove off the great green dragon, Sion Bloodbane and then from Ice Wall, where Lorana killed the dark elven magic user, Feelthas. He knew of the discovery of the dragon orbs, the destruction of one, the frail mage's acquisition of the other. It was Gakkan who followed Tannis in Flotsam, and who was able to direct the Dark Lady to them aboard the Paracon, but there again, as before, Gakkan moved his game-piece only to find an opponent's peace, blocking a final move. The Draconian did not despair. Gakan knew his opponent. He knew the great power opposing him. He was playing for high stakes, very high stakes indeed. Thinking of all this as he left the Dark Majesty's Temple, where even now the Dragon High Lords were gathering for High Conclave, Gakan entered the streets of Naraka. It was light now, just at the end of the day. As the sun slid down from the sky, its last rays were freed from the shadow of the citadels. It burned now above the mountains, gilding the still snow-capped peaks, blood-red. Garkan's reptilian gaze did not linger on the sunset, instead it flicked among the streets of the tent town, now almost completely empty since most of the Draconians were required to be in attendance upon their lords this evening. The high lords had a notable lack of trust in each other and in their queen. Murder had been done before in her chambers and would most likely be done again. That did not concern Garkan, however. In fact, it made his job easier. Quickly, he led the other Draconians through the foul-smelling, refuse-littered streets. He could have sent them on this mission without him, but Gakan had come to know his great opponent very well, and he had a distinct feeling of urgency. The wind of momentous events was starting to swirl into a huge vortex. He stood in the eye now, but he knew it would soon sweep him up, Garkan wanted to be able to ride those winds, not be hurled upon the rocks. This is the place, he said, standing outside of a beer tent. A sign tacked to a post read in common, The Dragon's Eye, while a placard propped in front stated in crudely lettered common, Dracos and Goblins Not Allowed. Peering through the filthy tent flap, Garkan saw his quarry. Motioning to his escorts, he thrust aside the flap and stepped inside. An uproar greeted his entrance as the humans in the bar turned their bleary eyes on the newcomers and, seeing three draconians, immediately began to shout and jeer. The shouts and jeers died almost instantly, however, when Gakan removed the hood that covered his reptilian face. Everyone recognized Lord Kitiara's henchman. A pall settled over the crowd, thicker than the rank smoke and foul odors that filled the bar. Casting fearful glances at the Draconians, the humans hunched their shoulders over their drinks and huddled down, trying to become inconspicuous. Gakan's glittering black gaze swept over the crowd. There! he said in Draconian motioning to a human slouched over the bar. His escorts acted instantly, seizing the one-eyed human soldier who stared at them in drunken terror. Take him outside! In back! Garkhan ordered. Ignoring the bewildered captain's protests and pleadings, as well as the baleful looks and muttered threats from the crowd, the Draconians dragged their captive out into the back. Garkhan followed more slowly. It only took a few moments for the skilled Draconians to sober their prisoner up enough to talk. The man's hoarse screams caused many of the bar's patrons to lose their taste for their liquor. But eventually he was able to respond to Garkhan's questioning. Do you remember arresting a Dragon Army officer this afternoon on charges of desertion? The captain remembered questioning many officers today. He was a busy man. They all looked alike. Gakan gestured to the Draconians, who responded promptly and efficiently. The captain screamed in agony. Yes, yes, he remembered. But it wasn't just one officer. There had been two of them. Two. Gakan's eyes glittered. Described the other officer. A big human. Really big. Bulging out of his uniform. And there had been prisoners, prisoners. Gakon's reptilian tongue flicked in and out of his mouth. Describe them. The captain was only too happy to describe. A human woman. Red curls, breasts the size of... Get on with it. Gakan snarled. His clawed hands trembled. He glanced at his escorts and the Draconians tightened their grip. Sobbing, the captain gave hurried descriptions of the other two prisoners, his words falling over themselves. A kender, Gakan repeated, growing more and more excited. Go on! An old man, white beard. He paused, puzzled. The old magic user... Surely they would not have allowed that decrepit old fool to accompany them on a mission so important and fraught with peril. If not, then who? Someone else they had picked up? Tell me more about the old man, Gakan ordered. The captain cast desperately about in his liquor-soaked and pain-stupefied brain. The old man? White beard. Stoop. No, tall, broad shoulders, blue eyes, queer eyes. The captain was on the verge of passing out. Gakan clutched the man in his clawed hand, squeezing his neck. What about the eyes? Fearfully, the captain stared at the Draconian, who was slowly choking the life from him. He babbled something. Young. Too young. Gakhan repeated in exultation. Now he knew, Where are they? The captain gasped out a word, then Gakhan hurled him to the floor with a crash. The whirlwind was rising. Gakhan felt himself being swept upward. One thought beat in his brain like the wings of a dragon as he and his escorts left the tent, racing for the dungeons below the palace. The Everman! The Everman! The Everman!
1: Chapter 7 The Temple of the Queen of Darkness Tass! Hurt! Let me alone! I know, Tass! I'm sorry, but you've got to wake up! Please, Tass!
0: An edge of fear and urgency in the voice pierced the pain-laden mists in the Kender's mind. Part of him was jumping up and down, yelling at him to wake up. But another part was all for drifting back into the darkness that, while unpleasant, was better than facing the pain he knew was lying in wait for him, ready to spring. Tass! Tass! A hand patted his cheek. The whispered voice was tense, tight with terror, kept under control. The Kendor knew suddenly that he had no choice. He had to wake up. Besides, the jumping up and down part of his brain shouted, You might be missing something. Thank the gods! Tika breathed as Tasselhoff's eyes opened wide and stared up at her. How do you feel? Awful. Tass said thickly, struggling to sit up. As he had foreseen, pain leaped out of a corner and pounced on him. Groaning, he clutched his head. I know. I'm sorry. Tika said again, stroking his hair with a gentle hand. I'm sure you mean well, Tika, Tass said miserably. But would you mind not doing that? It feels like dwarf hammers pounding on me. Tika drew back her hand hurriedly. The peered around as best he could through one good eye. The other had nearly swollen shut.
1: Where are we? In the dungeons below the temple,
0: Tika said softly. Tas, sitting next to her, could feel her shiver with fear and cold. Looking around, he could see why. The sight made him shudder, too. Wistfully. He remembered the good old days when he hadn't known the meaning of the word fear. He should have felt a thrill of excitement. He was, after all, someplace he'd never been before, and there were probably lots of fascinating things to investigate. But there was death here. Tass knew, death, and suffering. He'd seen too many die, too many suffer. His thoughts went to Flint, to Sturm. To Lorana. Something had changed inside Tas. He would never again be like other Kender. Through grief he had come to know fear, fear not for himself, but for others. He decided right now that he would rather die himself than lose anyone else he loved. You have chosen the dark path, and you have the courage to walk it. Fizban had said. Did he? Tass wondered. Sighing, he hid his face in his hands. No, Tass! Tika said, shaking him. Don't do this to us. We need you. Painfully, Tass raised his head.
1: I'm all right,
0: he said dully.
1: Where's Karaman and
0: Baram? Over there, Tika gestured toward the far end of the cell. The guards are holding all of us together until they can find someone to decide what to do with us. Karaman's being splendid, she added with a proud smile and a fond glance at the big man who was slouched, apparently sulking, in a far corner as far from his prisoners as he could get. Then Tika's face grew fearful. She drew Tass nearer. But I'm worried about Barum. I think he's going crazy. Tasselhoff looked up quickly at Barum. The man was sitting on the cold, filthy stone floor of the cell, his gaze abstracted, his head cocked as though listening, the fake white beard Tika had made out of goat hair was torn and bedraggled. It wouldn't take much time for it to fall off completely, Tass realized in alarm glancing quickly out the cell door. The dungeons were a maze of corridors, tunneled out of the solid rock beneath the temple. They appeared to branch off in all directions from a central guardroom, a small, round, open-ended room at the bottom of a narrow, winding staircase that bored straight down from the ground floor of the temple. In the guardroom, a large hobgoblin sat at a battered table beneath a torch, calmly munching on bread and swilling it down with a jug of something. A ring of keys, hanging on a nail above his head, proclaimed him the head jailer. He ignored the companions. He probably couldn't see them clearly in the dim light anyway, Tass realized, since the cell they were in was about a hundred paces away, down a dark and dismal corridor. Creeping over to the cell door, Tass peered down the corridor in the opposite direction. Wetting a finger he held it up in the air. That way was north, he determined. Smoking, foul-smelling torches flickered in the dank air. A large cell farther down was filled with draconians and goblins, sleeping off drunken rebels. At the far end of the corridor, beyond their cell, stood a massive iron door, slightly ajar. Listening carefully, Tass thought he could hear sounds from beyond the door, voices, low moaning. That's another section of the dungeon, Tass decided, basing his decision on past experience. The jailer probably left the door ajar so he could make his rounds and listen for disturbances.
1: You're right, Tika,
0: Tass whispered. We're locked in some kind of holding cell, probably awaiting orders. Tika nodded. Karaman's act, if not completely fooling the guards, was at least forcing them to think twice before doing anything rash. I'm going over to talk to Barum," Tass said. No, Tass. Tika glanced at the man uneasily. I don't think... But Tass didn't listen. Taking one last look at the jailer, Tass ignored Tika's soft remonstrations and crawled toward Barum with the idea of sticking the man's false beard back on his face. He had just neared him and was reaching out his small hand, when suddenly the Everman roared and leaped straight at the kender. Startled, Tass fell backward with a shriek but Berem didn't even see him. Yelling incoherently, he sprang over Tasselhoff and flung himself bodily against the cell door. Karaman was on his feet now, as was the hobgoblin. Trying to appear irritated at having his rest disturbed, Karaman darted a stern glance at Tasselhoff on the floor. "'What did you do to him?' the big man growled out of the side of his mouth, Nothing, Caraman. Honest! Tass gasped. He.
1: he's crazy!
0: Baron did indeed seem to have gone mad. Oblivious to pain, he flung himself at the iron bars, trying to break them open. When this didn't work, he grasped the bars in his hands and started to wrench them apart. I'm coming, Jasla! he screamed. Don't leave! Forgive! The jailer, his pig eyes wide in alarm, ran over to the stairs and began shouting up at them. He's calling the guards, Karaman grunted. We've got to get Baram calmed down. Tika! But the girl was already by Baram's side. Holding on to his shoulder, she pleaded with him to stop. At first, the berserk man paid no attention to her, roughly shaking her off him. Atika petted and stroked and soothed, until eventually it seemed Baram might listen. He quit attempting to force the cell door open, and stood still, his hands clenching the bars. The beard had fallen to the floor, his face was covered with sweat, and he was bleeding from a cut where he had rammed the bars with his head. There was a rattling sound near the front of the dungeon as two Draconians came dashing down the stairs at the jailer's call. Their curved swords drawn and ready. They advanced down the narrow corridor, the jailer at their heels. Swiftly, Tass grabbed the beard and stuffed it into one of his pouches, hoping they wouldn't remember that Barum had come in with whiskers. Tika, still stroking Barum soothingly, babbled out anything that came into her head. Aaron did not appear to be listening, but at least he appeared quiet once more. Breathing heavily, he stared with glazed eyes into the empty cell across from them. Tass could see muscles in the man's arms twitch spasmodically. What is the meaning of this? Karaman shouted as the Draconians came up to the cell door. You've locked me in here with a raving beast. He tried to kill me. I demand you get me out of here. Tasselhoff, watching Karaman closely, saw the big warrior's right hand make a small, quick gesture toward the guard. Recognizing the signal, Tass tensed, ready for action. He saw Tika tense, too. One hobgoblin and two guards. They'd faced worse odds. The Draconians looked at the jailer, who hesitated. Task could guess what was going through the creature's thick mind. If this big officer was a personal friend of the Dark Lady, she would certainly not look kindly on a jailer who allowed one of her close friends to be murdered in his prison cell. "'I'll get the keys,' the jailer muttered, waddling back down the corridor. The Draconians began to talk together in their own language, apparently exchanging rude comments about the hobgoblin. Karaman flashed a look at Tika and Tas, making a quick gesture of heads banging together. Tas, fumbling in one of his pouches, closed his hand over his little knife. They had searched his pouches, but in an effort to be helpful, Tas kept switching his pouches around until the confused guards, after their fourth search of the same pouch, Gave up. Karaman had insisted the Kender be allowed to keep his pouches, since there were items the dark lady wanted to examine, unless, of course, the guards wanted to be responsible. Tika kept patting Barum, her hypnotic voice bringing a measure of peace back to his fevered, staring blue eyes. The jailer had just grabbed the keys from the wall and was starting to walk back down the corridor again when a voice from the bottom of the stairs stopped him. What do you want? the jailer snarled, irritated and startled at the sight of a cloaked figure appearing suddenly, without warning. I am Gakan, said the voice. Hushing immediately at the sight of the newcomer, the draconians drew themselves up in respect, while the hobgoblin turned a sickly green color. The keys clinking together in his flabby hand. Two more guards clattered down the stairs. At a gesture from the cloaked figure they came to stand beside him. Walking past the quaking hobgoblin, the figure drew closer to the cell door. Now Tass could see the figure clearly. It was another Draconian, dressed in armor, with a dark cape thrown over its face. The Kender bit his lip in frustration. Well, the odds still weren't that bad. Not for Karaman. The hooded Draconian, ignoring the stammering jailer, who was trotting along behind him like a fat dog, grabbed a torch from the wall and came over to stand directly in front of the companion's jail cell. Get me out of this place! Caraman shouted, elbowing Barum to one side. But the Draconian, ignoring Karaman, reached through the bars of the cell and laid a clawed hand on Barham's shirt front. Tass darted a frantic look at Karaman. The big man's face was deathly pale. He made a desperate lunge at the Draconian, but it was too late. With a twist of its clawed hand, the Draconian ripped Barham's shirt to shreds. Green light flared into the jail cell as the torchlight illuminated the gemstone embedded in Baram's flesh. It is he, Gakan said quietly. Unlock the cell. The jailer put the key in the cell door, with hands that shook visibly. Snatching it away from the hobgoblin, one of the draconian guards opened the cell door, then they surged inside. One guard struck Karaman a vicious blow on the side of the head with the hilt of its sword, felling the warrior like an ox, while another grabbed Tika. Gakan entered the cell. Kill him. The Draconian motioned at Karaman. And the girl and the kender. Gakan laid his clawed hand on Beram's shoulder. I will take this one to her dark majesty. The Draconian flashed a triumphant glance around at the others. This night, victory is ours, he said softly. Sweating in the dragon-scale armor, Tannis stood beside Kitiara in one of the vast antechambers leading into the great hall of audience. Surrounding the half-elf were Kityara's troops, including the hideous, skeletal warriors, under the command of the Death Knight, Lord Soth. These stood in the shadows just behind Kitiara. Though the antechamber was crowded, Kitiara's draconian troops were packed in spear to spear. There was, nevertheless, a vast empty space around the undead warriors. None came near them. None spoke to them. They spoke to no one. And though the room was stifling hot with the crushing press of many bodies, a chill flowed from these that nearly stopped the heart, if one ventured too near. Feeling Lord Soth's flickering eyes upon him, Tanis could not repress a shudder. Kityara glanced up at him and smiled. The crooked smile he had once found so irresistible, she stood close to him, their bodies touching. You'll get used to them, she said coolly. Then her gaze returned to the proceedings in the vast hall. The dark line appeared between her brows, her hand tapped irritably upon her sword hilt. Get moving, Ariacus, she muttered. Tanis looked over her head, staring through the ornate doorway they would enter when it was their turn, watching in an awe he could not hide as the spectacle unfolded before his eyes. The hall of audience of Tarkisis, queen of darkness, first impressed the viewer with a sense of his own inferiority. This was the black heart which kept the dark blood flowing and, as such, its appearance was fitting. The antechamber in which they stood opened onto a huge circular room with a floor of polished black granite. The floor continued up to form the walls, rising in tortured curves like dark waves frozen in time. Any moment, it seemed, they could crash down and engulf all those within the hall in blackness, It was only Her Dark Majesty's power that held them in check, and so the black waves swept upward to a high-domed ceiling, now hidden from view by a wispy wall of shifting, eddying smoke. The Breath of Dragons The floor of the vast hall was empty now, but it would soon be filling rapidly as the troops marched in to take up their positions beneath the thrones of their High Lords, These thrones, four of them, stood about ten feet above the gleaming granite floor. Squat gates opened from the concave walls onto black tongues of rock that licked outward from the walls. Upon these four huge platforms, two to each side, sat the High Lords, and only the High Lords. No one else, not even bodyguards, was allowed beyond the top step, of the sacred platforms. Bodyguards and high-ranking officers stood upon stairs that extended up to the thrones from the floor, like the ribs of some giant prehistoric beast. From the center of the hall rose another slightly larger platform, curling upward from the floor like a giant, hooded snake, which is exactly what it had been carved to represent. One slender bridge of rock ran from the snake's head to another gate in the side of the hall. The head faced Ariakas, and the darkness shrouded alcove above Ariakas. The emperor, as Ariakas styled himself, sat upon a slightly larger platform at the front of the great hall, about ten feet above those around it. Tannis felt his gaze drawn irresistibly to an alcove carved into the rock above Ariacus' throne. It was larger than the rest of the alcoves and, within it, lurked a darkness that was almost alive. It breathed and pulsed and was so intense that Tannis looked quickly away. Although he could see nothing, he guessed who would soon sit within those shadows. Shuddering, Tannis turned back to the darkness within the hall. There was not much left to see. All around the domed ceiling, in alcoves similar, though smaller than the High Lord's alcoves, perched the dragons. Almost invisible, obscured by their own smoking breath, these creatures sat opposite their respective High Lord's alcoves, keeping vigilant watch. So the High Lords supposed. Upon there, masters. Actually, only one dragon in the assemblage was truly concerned over his master's welfare. This was Skye, Kitiara's dragon, who, even now, sat in his place, his fiery red eyes staring at the throne of Ariakas with much the same intensity and far more visible hatred than Tanis had seen in the eyes of Skye's master. A gong rang. Masses of troops poured into the hall, all of them wearing the red dragon colors of Ariacus's troops. Hundreds of clawed and booted feet scraped the floor as the Draconians and Human Guard of Honor entered and took their places beneath Ariacus's throne. No officers ascended the stairs. No bodyguards took their places in front of their lord. Then the man himself entered through the gate behind his throne. He walked alone, his purple robes of state sweeping majestically from his shoulders, dark armor gleaming in the torchlight. Upon his head glistened a crown studded with jewels, the hue of blood. The crown of power, Kityara murmured. And now Tannis saw emotion in her eyes, longing, such longing as he had rarely seen in human eyes before. Whoever wears the crown rules, came a voice behind her. So it is written, Lord Soth. Tannis stiffened to keep from trembling, feeling the man's presence like a cold, skeletal hand upon the back of his neck. Ariakas's troops cheered him long and loudly, thumping their spears upon the floor, clashing their swords against their shields. Kitiara snarled in impatience. Finally, Ariakas extended his hands for silence. Turning, he knelt in reverence before the shadowy alcove above him. Then, with a wave of his gloved hand, the head of the dragon-high lords made a patronizing gesture to Kitiara.